Good afternoon. It's Friday the 31st of March 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, as usual, on Friday, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And we've got Vanessa Bealey joining us from Damascus uh, via video link, as usual. Um, so let's get straight on then with, uh, well, Joe Biden's uh, Summit for Democracy. It's been taking place this week. Uh, so this is the Summit for Democracy, which is, uh, it was a virtual conference, 140 countries taking part, sorry, 120 countries taking part. Of course, China and Russia were not taking part because they're not considered democracies. Taiwan did, did take part. Uh, and But the other thing that was interesting, Patrick, was that Turkey and Hungary were, were banned from the event as well. Um, so uh, this, uh, when they were previewing the uh, the summit on Tuesday this week, he said that the event f aims to focus on themes of strengthening democracy, strengthening democratic re resilience, promoting respect for human rights, and advancing the fight against corruption. Um, so uh, let's just uh, have a little listen to what uh, Joe, when he was introducing the conference with a couple of others, uh, had to say. Just a few seconds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second summit for democracy. Since our first summit, our democracies have come together to meet the needs of our people and the challenges of our time. We are tackling the issues that matter most to people's lives, creating jobs, strengthening food and global health security, and ensuring our children have what they need to succeed. We are making strides to avert a climate catastrophe and unlock a clean energy future that is equitable and fair. We're holding Russia accountable for its unjust and unprovoked war against Ukraine, showing that democracies are strong and resolved. Strong and resolved. So uh, if everybody stopped laughing at that, what, what were your thoughts? So Hungary is an EU country, isn't it, Mike? And a NATO country. And a NATO country. But As is Tur and Turkey's a NATO country. But they're not democracies. Well, whether they're democracies or not, they're not allowed to take part in the democracy summit. Someone should notify Ursula van der Leyen straight away that Hungary is not a democracy. That seems like a pretty urgent, urgent matter. Well, since we've mentioned Ursula von der Leyen, let's bring her on. Today, we all understand that we must fight for democracy every single day. That's the nature of democracy. We can never take it for granted. We must always take care of it and renew that bond of trust between the people and the institutions that serve them. So if they have to renew this bond of trust between the people and the institutions which she claims serve them, don't, and instead they dictate to them, uh, then there's an acknowledgement there that that trust has been lost already. Uh, uh, well, the question then is, what are they doing to uh, what are they doing to reestablish that trust? Are they telling the truth? Uh, let's listen to what Rishi Sunak had to say in just a few seconds. Since the summit for democracy in 2021, there have been two defining events. First, Russia has sought to obliterate democracy in Ukraine while also accelerating their malicious disinformation campaigns around the world. Second, democracies like ours have stood up. We have worked together to protect the Ukrainian people and to defend their rights and freedoms. And so, except for freedom of religion in Ukraine, which Zelensky is cracking down on the uh, Russian Orthodox Church. The Patriarch spoke out about it, uh, by the way. Yes. He said, uh, whoa, you should fear he told Zelensky, you should be of fear anyway. Yes. So the question is, Patrick, having watched 
Ursula and Rishi, uh, are you feeling more trustful of uh, democracies? A lot, a lot more trustful. A lot more trustful. And, and, and Rishi Sunak wearing the glasses now, the spectacles makes him, I think, a lot more authoritative. So I think this is progress. So yesterday at the at the summit, uh, the UK and the US announced the winners of their prize competition, uh, prize challenges as they're describing it, uh, which drives innovation and privacy enhancing technologies apparently. And two main areas, the first one on pandemic response and forecasting. Uh, so this, they, this is one area where they were giving away prizes, basically money uh, for dealing with uh, well, what they're now describing is end-to-end -end privacy. So you can't call it end-to-end -end encryption because of course we're working to ban that. We're gonna come on to that in a second. But it, so they're calling it end-to-end -end, uh, privacy instead. And the other area that they decided they were gonna have a look at was this financial crime prevention. Um, so these are the two areas. Here's Michelle Donnellan and what she had to say. Never before has our privacy been so important and we must protect our democratic values by safeguarding the right to privacy. That is why the UK and its allies are collaborating to create uh, innovative technologies that enable public institutions to combat financial crime and promote public health without compromising the, the confidentiality of the sensitive data they manage. So the question is, is that true? Uh, what exactly, how are the UK and its allies collaborating? Let's just remind ourselves, first of all, uh, online safety bill in the UK, if we take the UK, how does the fact that the online safety bill enables mass surveillance on a scale we've never seen before, how does that enhance our privacy? Let's just remind ourselves what uh, Index on Censorship said about this. Provisions in the online safety bill that would enable state-backed surveillance of private communications contain some of the broadest and po uh, most powerful surveillance powers ever proposed in any Western democracy. It means that the UK would be one of the first democracies to place a de facto ban on end-to-end -end encryption for private messaging apps. Uh, and then they got uh, an opinion from a King's Council uh, and the legal opinion said that Section 104 of the uh, Online Safety Bill, Section 104 notices amount to state-mandated surveillance. Ofcom would have wider remit on mass surveillance powers than, of UK citizens than the UK spy agencies. Just consider that Ofcom, the so-called regulator, would have wider remit for mass surveillance than MI5, MI6 and GCHQ. Uh, the the uh, King's Council's opinion was that the legality of uh, Section 104 of the Online Safety Bill is questionable. Uh, and of course, there's a failure to protect journalists. And this was a theme of the uh, Democracy Summit, was well, that they, they, want, they wanted to enhance protection for journalists. Why does Ofcom need mass surveillance capability? What, what would well, because do? it needs mass surveillance capability because I, how else does it identify what people are doing online and identify what is an online harm and then take action against, uh, against the platforms that aren't uh, enforcing the uh, legislation? Uh, so to watch what people are looking at, right? But also what people are posting. It's very much like Big Brother, isn't it? Very much like yes. that. Okay, doesn't end there because remember, we're collaborating with other countries. So let's look at what the United States are doing. Uh, two pieces of legislation that have been proposed in the last few weeks. The first one is this, it's the Data Act. Uh, this is uh, being put forward by a Republican, uh, Re Representative Michael McCall, uh, who's Republican from Texas. And data stands for deterring America's technological adversaries. Uh, now this is one of the two acts which is being presented as, being, as going against TikTok. T the whole TikTok thing is a distraction 
when we actually look under the surface of this and look into the weeds, this legislation is pretty grim. So this is one. Now, this doesn't have cross-party support and it doesn't have White House support. But if we look at the other act, which is the Restrict Act, this does have cross-party uh, support uh, and uh, it has White House support, obviously, because it's a d Democrat bill. Um, now, this is really quite staggering. So this has been put forward by Mark Warner. He, he is the driving force behind Russiagate, by the way, and also getting uh, social media companies like Facebook uh, to do more sort of censorship right at the beginning in 20, after the 2016 election. Right. He, he was running point. Okay, so, re so RESTRICT stands for Restricting the Emergence of Security Threats that Risk Information and Communications Technology. Uh, as I say, bipartisan bill uh, supported by the White House. White House. Uh, it's very similar, Patrick, to the way that uh, uh, terrorism was used to bring the Patriot Act in. So some people are already calling this Patriot Act too. Um, it's a massive Trojan horse. This is yes using TikTok as the Trojan horse to to you know uh, reduce Chinese malign influence on children. This is how they're selling this. Uh, this bill, Mike. Right. So, uh, so look, it, TikTok isn't mentioned in the bill. What the bill mentions is desktop applications, mobile applications, gaming applications, payment applications, web-based applications, everything connected to the internet that serves anything greater than a million users per year. Uh, so, that, that even even a medium-sized website is going to be doing that, right? So, this is this has huge scope. But the biggest part of it is that it, it actually. It, it enables the potential for the US equivalent of the Great Firewall of China. But what it additionally does is it, it effectively bans the use of virtual private networks. Now, in China, if you want to get past the virtual, uh, the Great Firewall of China, you run up a VPN, and the Chinese government doesn't seem to worry too much about people using VPNs. But the US government is going to legislate against the use of VPNs effectively here. So if we, for example, uh, put that back on screen for a second, uh, please, Stephanie, thank you. Uh, if we look at what it says, no person may cause or aid, abet, counsel, command, induce, procure, permit, or approve the doing of any act prohibited by or the emission of any act required by any legis uh, regulation, order, direction, mitigation measure, prohibition, or other authorized authorization or directive issued under this act. So in other words, if they ban a website, let's say RT, for example, if they ban a website in the United States, uh, and then you decide to uh, subvert or work around that ban by using a VPN, you would be in breach of this legislation. Potentially. Uh, potentially, yes. Uh, and uh, now, in the mainstream press in the United States, they're saying that the purpose of this legislation is to go after the platforms and not to go after individuals, but there's nothing in the legislation which says that. So that may be what they say publicly at this stage, but that, there's nothing that, that prohibits them. Uh, the the, the uh, penalties for breach of this are million dollar fines, imprisonment, uh, the seizing of uh, property. So for example, if you uh, own a server farm and you're running VPN servers and your VPN uh, uh, service is allowing people to get around this legislation, the, the US government is attempting to take uh, the powers to take your, your property away from you, remove those servers from the data center, you never see them again. And it's quite incredible. It is, and I might add, in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, um, they have a great firewall for information, and it's people routinely use uh, VPNs to bypass that. Um, it's seen as just standard practice for the average citizen. But this is particularly relevant because the UK government banned RT.com. 
didn't they, under the uh, ministership of uh, Liz Truss, I believe, right. before she was promoted to prime minister for 40-something days. Um, and so if you use a VPN in that hypothetical situation, Mike, to bypass the uh, Great Firewall of Britain uh, to access RT.com, then you would be in breach of this type of legislation. Right. And as we're going to show, there's a lot of language now to normalize and streamline this type of legislation in the EU, in the UK, and in North America, so and across the Five Eyes countries. So this isn't just an isolated issue. Uh, this it has the potential to go uh, across all of these G7 countries. Uh, so, you know, in the UK, we're using child sexual abuse and, and child exploitation as the excuse for this legislation. In the United States, perhaps Perhaps there's a little bit more honesty. It's China, and we don't like China, so we're going after them. In the EU, in the EU, it's back to the uh, child sexual abuse. So this is the uh, the EU's equivalent legislation here. Just one. There's a number of bills in the EU. Uh, so my point here is, this is collaboration across multiple countries, G7 countries in particular, to bring in similar types of, if not identical, policies. And therefore, you've got to say. Where's, or ask where is this policy coming from because it's not a national policy, it's an international policy. Um, so, And when they say privacy enhancing, you remember what you showed before? Yes. They, they were specific, they said data, that, privacy of data that we manage, right. state, not your individual privacy. So this is really deceptive, the language. You need to pay attention to that slight turn of phrase uh, by the government. Yes. Okay, so let's move on to this tweet from the uh, New York Times then. So here, Prime Ministers of eight European countries, Mike, read carefully, European countries, you think that's EU, don't you? We'll go on to that in a minute. Eight European countries sign an open letter asking uh, major social media companies to take more aggressive steps to halt the spread of misinformation designed to weaken our support to Ukraine amid Russia's war of aggression. So you see where this is heading, don't you? The slippery slope uh, continues here. Let's take a look at this open letter to big social media tech. Love the translation. Thank you very much, dear CEOs and big tech. So it goes on, but I'm going to uh, look at a specific part of this. I think a couple of things we need to pay attention to. Look at this. Foreign information manipulation and interference, including disinformation, is being deployed to destabilize our countries, weaken our democracies, to derail Moldova and Ukraine's accession to the European Union, ah, there we are, and to weaken our support to Ukraine amid Russia's war of aggression. So you see what's going on here, Mike. I don't know if this is kind of obvious by now already. And uh, here's the interesting bit. Big tech companies should be vigilant and resist being used as a means of advancing such goals. They should take steps to ensure that their platforms are not being used to spread propaganda or disinformation that promotes war, justifies war crimes, crimes against humanity, and other forms of violence. So, of course, they're trying to point all of this at Russia. But actually, if we were to enforce this by the letter, Mike, uh, it would be a much wider remit, wouldn't it? Well, isn't it incredible that uh, they're accusing whom of pushing disinformation that promotes war. The only organizations or institutions that are pushing disinformation to promote war are our own governments at this uh, and the mainstream press, as far as I can see. And, and we just showed you last week, remember the New York Times, rogue Ukrainian cell, the Germans and the Americans got together to come up with a, 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 a cover story for the Nord Stream right. uh, uh, investigation that's uh, not happening. So, and we'll go on here. Let's just uh, move on to the next uh, uh, item here on this. 
but um, look at this. So this is really interesting. A consistent and global approach, as you said, Mike, right. a global approach to regulation. The self-regulation by big tech, threatened by fines, right, probably by the EU, is needed to respond to all these issues. The global dominance of a limited number of players makes this need even more pressing. Limited number of players. They're talking about Silicon Valley now. Uh, this is a call to action because foreign information manipulation and interference, including disinformation campaigns, pose a threat to democracy, national security. So this is now being couched in, in the rules-based international order. It, it, these are a hostile attack on democracy. So they're, they're calling the threat of disinformation on Facebook, Twitter now, uh, this could be your opinion on any weighing in on Ukraine, for instance, a threat to all these things. And look at the signatories here. We have the Prime Minister of Moldova, not in the EU. Uh, we have the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Slovakia, and of course at the end, Denis uh, Shimal, the Prime Minister of Ukraine. Uh -huh. So European countries, eight European countries. So Ukraine is now part of Europe, de facto. They're already talking about their accession already. Right. That's news to some people. So there we are. And that brings us in on to Julian Assange. Well, this uh, idea that jur journalists uh, are, need to be protected, this doesn't seem to apply in Britain to one of the most famous journalists who's still uh, unfortunately incarcerated uh, in Belmarsh Prison here. And uh, it's coming up, Mike, to the three-year, I believe, it's no, four-year anniversary. Right. Uh, April 2019, he was bundled out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, and put in Belmarsh Prison, unconvicted, still there in a category A prison here. And I just grabbed something that we put on Facebook uh, yesterday. Julian Assange is still on remand in high-security Belmarsh Prison in the UK on a U.S. Justice Department extradition request on trumped-up charges that would make the NKVD or the Stasi blush. As a political prisoner, and he is a political prisoner, he awaits his freedom at the whim of politicians. President Biden will visit Australia and Anthony Albanese in May. So Aussies need to get organized and make some serious noise. Um, and so here's what the uh, Australian uh, penny Wong, yeah, Penny Wong, the Australian FM under Albanese, she's saying, ah, not so fast. Things aren't looking good uh, in terms of freeing Assange from the Australian side. She's come up with a whole list, a bevy of excuses as to why this is not going to be possible. So she's warning that there's limits to what diplomacy can achieve. Well, they haven't really done much in terms of diplomacy, so it seems to be self-limiting from there. But here, look at this. The interesting stuff, everyone, is coming from America. So you have a potential bipartisan, the same bipartisan coalition that was pushing back against U.S. troops in Syria is now being activated uh, to drop charges against Assange. This is extremely interesting. This is led by squad member uh, Rashida Tlaib here, a Democrat congressional effort to end Assange prosecution is now underway. Signatures are being gathered to give to the Attorney General Merrick Garland, that's Biden's head of the DOJ, uh, to basically kill the extradition drive. Mm -hmm. So this is now happening, and this is interesting. I think there's some, some progress here. But all this comes amid an incredible revelation in the last 24 hours. This is unbelievable. Spanish company provide the CIA with information leading to Assange's arrest. We speculated about this before. Now, apparently, we have the evidence. Emails from the owner of the uh, security firm 
UC Global was working with the CIA revealed that he sold the data about WikiLeaks founders' legal defense strategy to an intelligence agency. Well, we know which one it is. The US government quickly sent a warrant to the UK to foil the escape plan. Here it is. Ecuador's President Lenin Moreno at the time ordered staff to work with Assange's Spanish lawyers to develop a plan to get Assange out of the embassy, grant him Ecuadorian nationality, and provide a diplomatic passport. The plan was set weeks before uh, Rami Vallejo's meeting and was only known to six people. And now we find out known to the CIA. So here we go. When UC Global's cameras recorded the meeting, so they installed cameras in the embassy here, recorded the meeting by Assange. This was uh, Stella Morris, now his wife Stella Assange, Ecuadorian consul Fidel uh, Nevraez and Rami Vallejo, who was the head, I believe, of the Ecuadorian security services. Um, and it learned that the getaway would happen in four days. So this was December 25th of the year in which they're talking about there. I believe that is 2017, if I'm not mistaken, um, or to late 2016, possibly. But uh, Assange would leave in one of the ambassador's diplomatic cars and travel through the Eurotunnel to Switzerland or another destination in continental Europe here. And here's the, the, it, the message here. Uh, it's very late. This is from UC Global. Uh, because the file is so big, I put the file in a shared Dropbox cloud storage data service. Someone with experience in audio can work out the audio. So he says the audio is muffled and so forth. And we'll go on here. Uh, Morales dispatched the data uh, in the early hours of the morning to his American friends and with immediate impact. The United States quickly sent an arrest warrant for Assange to the United Kingdom. So the escape plan had been aborted. So that was all happening. And then he continued his time in the, he continued to stay in the embassy for another year or two years, was uh, it, after that? Yeah, two years, yeah. two years. So this was two years before he was bundled out of the Ecuadorian embassy, Mike. So, I mean, pretty incredible, pretty incredible. Yeah, so two years, uh, April 2019, he was bundled out. Yes. So, th so that shows you, so this whole series of events was triggered by the CIA spying on Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. So they managed to work with this Spanish security firm from southwestern Spain, UC Global. And this is how this all happened. This is an incredible story. So this is a pretty big revelation on the Assange case. So we hope that uh, there's going to be some movement on the U.S. side. It certainly looks like there's a little bit of, it's going to become a wedge issue potentially for the election. In other words, if Trump, if Trump says he's going to pardon Assange, that creates a huge advantage to Republicans uh, in the run-up to the 2024 election. It's going to make Democrats look bad that they didn't uh, stand up for civil liberties, for the free press, and so forth. Okay, well, speaking of Donald Trump, let's just uh, mention him briefly because uh, he's now been indicted. This is, uh, well, the first time in history a sitting president or former president has been indicted here, Donald Trump. Uh, is indicted by a Manhattan grand jury on more than 30 counts related to business fraud or the misfiling of uh, business expenses, to be more accurate here. So this happened yesterday among speculation that it might not happen. They thought it might be dropped. So this is not a federal court. This same case was thrown out of the federal court. The Southern District of New York looked at this and they said that there was nothing there worth prosecuting. It was a misdemeanor at best, but now uh, this is a allegedly a, a George Soros-funded district attorney here who campaigned on the uh, fact that he would get Trump if elected, and here he goes. Mm -hmm. so, so this is a local court with a local police station, so Trump would have to do the perp walk in there 
And so he's going to have his own photographers if that's the case. And I'm telling you right now, um, it, it's not likely they're going to be able to pull this off easy. The Secret Service cannot um, surrender custody or protection of the president uh, to anyone. So they'd have to clear out the whole jail, the whole police department, and the whole block in order to do this. I just logistically don't see how this is going to be possible. So you know, the, the other thing they're going to do on this is possibly negotiate a Zoom call for the indictment um, so they could do this remotely. So uh, Trump has said he plans to uh, go in and surrender himself. That's what sources tell you, mainstream media there. Uh, whether that happens or not, anyone's guess. The point is this could drag out for years. This could drag out for years. So he, the, what, the, why, why is this being done politically? To keep him off the ballot in certain states, mm. potentially where this might, uh, is this an ongoing case? might disqualify him, possibly, in a couple of states. He, this will not be able to keep him from running for president. But I'm telling you this, this now guarantees that Donald Trump is the front runner on the Republican ticket. They've made him into a martyr. And, and you, in terms of street cred and bona fides, he's now separated himself from Ron DeSantis and all the rhinos. The, his base is going to be fired up, and he can point to this and say, this validates everything I told you about the deep state, everything I told you about the corruption of the Biden administration, the DOJ, it's all there. So it basically validates all of the things that Trump uh, and the mainstream media would say that he, he it was a conspiracy theory. There is no deep state. There is no conspiracy to keep Donald Trump from. Of course there is, and here it is. So, And here's the interesting part. Ron DeSantis here said uh, he will not cooperate with the federal government to extradite Trump if asked to the state of New York. So that's uh, an interesting development. So Ron DeSantis is the presumed challenger to Trump in the polls as the sort of uh, number two possibility in the Republican primaries. And he's supporting Trump in principle. And I think this is a good move for DeSantis. It's obviously good for Trump, uh, generally good for the Republican Party that they have some solidarity on this issue because this could be a Democrat in the same position. Mm -hmm. If you allow the, the system to use lawfare, Brazilian style lawfare, which is what's happening in the U.S. now, and uh, it doesn't matter what party is being targeted. This is right. uh, this is third world stuff. Uh, well, indeed it is, uh, Vanessa. We've covered quite a lot so far. Welcome to the program. Any thoughts briefly before we move on to Israel and Syria? No, I'm just wondering who, which summit is going to hold Biden and the United States accountable for flaunting democracy in Syria and annexing, invading, uh, funding terrorists and arming them in Syria when he's talking about Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> yes. OK, well, look, let's move on to, uh, to, to another attack. I mean, it's another week. So, of course, there's another attack uh, on Syria by Israel. And this continues to happen without, well, without any condemnation or criticism or comment even uh, from the mainstream press or uh, or any politician, really. Yeah, definitely. I checked this morning. There's absolutely nothing in the mainstream press, nothing in the BBC um, and nothing in American press. There's one article in the Times of Israel, which we'll show at the end. Um, and this actually is the second consecutive attack by Israel uh, on the last two days. Nobody was expecting it because we had an attack around 1 a.m. Um, the day before. And then midnight last night, uh, the, the sound was incredible here because they targeted an air defense base about three kilometers away from here. 
Okay, I don't so know if you can put the sound up on the video, Mike. Yes, we'll, we'll, play, we'll, we'll play the video with the sound. So let, let's let's have a look mm. at this. So, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, what people don't understand is that these missiles, winged missiles, pass overhead at very low altitudes. So the sound that, that you heard on that video and then uh, the explosion, what you tend to do is to hear the explosion because the first missile usually hits before the air defense starts to come into action. Um, and so the sound is quite it's horrifying, actually. And of course, although Israel will claim they're targeting um, military zones, military bases, Iranian military um, servicemen, etc. Of course, what happens, the, the fallout is uh, usually in residential, densely populated residential areas. So why are these attacks happening in the last two days? Uh, first of all, in the first attack two days ago, there were two air defense soldiers injured in the attack. And then last night, the midnight attack uh, assassinated actually Milad uh, Haideri, who's an uh, uh, Iranian uh, military advisor to the Syrians uh, and himself an officer. So this was an actual assassination. It may have been that the day before they were trying to target him, they missed, and then they came back last night because it is unusual to get two attacks um, straight after each other like that. But why is this happening? Well, in my opinion, um, there has been a sort of um, a, a, a fight going on between the Syrian allied resistance in the northeast, where the U.S. is occupying oil, wheat, and agricultural uh, resources and stealing them, basically 80% of Syrian oil is escorted out of Syria by U.S. convoys and taken mostly, the majority of it goes to um, the U.S. bases in the northeast of Iraq. And so the Syrian allied resistance forces have um, been attacking the U.S. bases in the northeast, which has led to apparently six U.S. troops suffering traumatic brain injuries. Um, Twelve uh, American force members uh, have been injured in the in the strikes um, against them, and um, two what they call U.S. contractors, which usually is a euphemism for CIA. One was killed, one was injured. Now you'll remember that the traumatic brain injuries also happened when Iran retaliated for the assassination of Abu Mohammed Mohandes, the leader of the PMU in Iraq. Um, and uh, General Qasem Soleimani, uh, the Iranian uh, head of the IRGC. Now, Biden uh, basically went publicly saying that he will hold off on more airstrikes in Syria for now. 
um, and basically saying that he doesn't want to escalate the conflict against Iran in Syria. But then, in my opinion, what did he do? He made a phone call to Israel, to Netanyahu, and he said, can you carry out the attacks on our behalf? And hence, we had the retaliation against um, uh, the Iranian military uh, forces and Syrian Arab army air defense. Um, and as you said, the headlines are seriously missing in Western mainstream media. And the Times of Israel put out a lame um, report this morning. Uh, Syria accuses Israel of airstrikes in Damascus for the second night in a row. Extraordinary, there is absolutely no international condemnation of this violation of Syrian airspace and violation of uh, international law and the sovereignty of Syria. I mean, Syria is not at war officially with Israel. So Israel has absolutely no right to carry out these attacks. Of course, it will describe it as preemptive self-defense, um, which is kind of laughable. But there you go. It gets away with it. Yeah. Thoughts? Well, I was saying, uh, so Vanessa, you think that uh, it, has anybody else opined about the possibility that Biden called Israel to insist that they take out uh, an airstrike on their behalf, on Washington's behalf? Yeah, I mean, it's not the first time it's happened, but um, it happened a while back when um, basically there was another attack on one of the U.S. bases. And if you remember, Israel then carried out an attack on a residential area um, in Damascus and a heritage site in Damascus, the Damascus Citadel, and another UNESCO heritage site in Sweden. So it was a clear message from Israel that was requested by the U.S. to make the point, if you attack our U.S. bases, we will attack civilian and residential areas in your capital city. Um, and that was something that was uh, confirmed by military sources here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the two work together. The fact that Israel uses Al-Tanaf base, the U.S. base in the southeast to launch missiles quite regularly, it's clear that they're working hand in glove um, militarily against Syria. I think the traumatic brain injury report is interesting because the, the first time we ever heard that was after the attack by Iran on the U.S. bases in Iraq, as right. Vanessa said, um, in response to mm -hmm. the uh, d double assassination of Soleimani and Mohandes. But this, and, and they didn't report it until after they had arrived in the German at Stuttgart, I believe, uh, in the military hospital there. And all seemed a little bit strange. And there were some people that suspected it's possible that more people died in that attack and that this somehow might be somewhat of a cover story. Um, and so it's it's hard to tell. Uh, and it, certainly for the U.S. To, to, to report casualties or deaths in any kind of exchange like this in a place where they legally or you know, ha militarily have no business actually being there is problematic back in the U.S. Because if you said a dozen U.S. servicemen were killed in Syria on this attack, half the country would be saying, what are they doing there to begin with? But if it's only a few injuries, this can kind of slide under the radar. Uh, in the media, so I'm not, I'm just asking that question because both the, both these occasions very suspicious reporting. Yes, okay. Let's move on to Ukraine then, and uh, well, we'll begin with uh, Zelensky in uh, the Austrian Parliament because he went there to make a speech as he usually does. He was thanking them for all the support that they've given. Of course, uh, Austria is supposed to be neutral in this, so humanitarian aid is what he was thanking them for. Uh, but unfortunately, some MPs uh, didn't like that very much, so they walked out. 
while he was speaking and so, left behind these little uh, placards behind. Uh, so, so the placards, uh, this was the Freedom Party walked out, so the placards say space for neutrality or space for peace. So uh, they're, you know, they're leaving the space for neutrality or leaving the space for peace. Uh, they were very much upset that the uh, Austrian parliament was hosting Zelensky and appearing to take a position on this. Not physically hosting him, but this was a- It was a virtual of, uh, speech again, yes. Famous yes. Zoom calls, yes. yeah. Interesting. Well, that's, that's really uh, encouraging actually. But uh, are we right to say that? Can we say encouraging? Uh, don't know. Does that mean we're supporting Russia? <laughs> Uh, but but what else has it been up to? We mentioned. Uh, remind me who this is. Uh, well, uh, on on screen here, yes. this is uh, a big event. This this is a really an important event. Uh, Orlando Bloom, the actor, uh, uh, made it to Kiev, and here's the photo op here uh, with Zelensky. So yeah, there we are. The uh, elves of Rivendell have arrived, uh, and Legolas himself there to add uh, additional support here. And I think what this really meant here is that uh, in fact uh, he's uh, Zelensky was confirming the uh, delivery of the elf army uh, to finally turn the tide uh, on this war that just keeps dragging on. That, that's an interesting point you're making there because of course there's a dark message here because Russia are always referred to as the orcs. Correct. And so, so that that actually is a pretty dark message that's being sent. Well, it, it's it's also dark that Orlando Bloom was uh, waxing on about Buddhist principles and Buddhist because he himself is a practicing Buddhist. I believe he's SGI, Sakagai International, which right. is a lay Buddhist organization. And by the way, there's some wonderful people in this organization, and they are dedicated to world peace. So I, I find it problematic that he is. Uh, making these statements about Buddhism. At the same time, he is almost encouraging or seems to be encouraging Zelensky. Orlando Bloom's not publicly saying peace negotiations. So the whole thing doesn't make a whole lot of sense. More inconsistency from the uh, celebrities and from the political, uh, the, the liberal left on Ukraine. Um, okay, well, let's move on to Nord Stream then. And uh, what's the latest? Well, we uh, a couple of days ago, UN Security Council uh, voted will not uh, probe the Nord Stream bombing. So no investigation. Obviously, the only members of the council that voted in favor of the resolution um, on this, well, this was the, uh, the UN, initially the UN Security Council voted on Monday against a Russian effort uh, to get an independent investigation into the Nord Stream terrorist attack, uh, state-sponsored terrorist attack here. So, and uh, so this is the uh, the result of this is gridlock um, on this issue here um, with the UN Security Council and China had some interesting things to say. Uh, let's go to this video clip with captions in English here. 中方注意到不少安理会成员在发言中谴责北溪管道遭破坏事件，一些成员也指出调查要加快，信息要透明。这充分说明了全球跨国基础设施安全问题早日让真相大白于天下，将肇事者绳之以法。So, so I mean, this is a really important point, as she says. Uh, the U.S. 
carrying out investigations in other countries. But when this anything that potentially involves the US or UK, well, that's national security. Can't talk about that. Blocking the investigation. Yeah. So the US is saying we didn't do it, but then they're impeding an independent investigation. So uh, this is just going to feed into people's speculation that it was indeed the United States um, who either did or ordered, uh, coordinated the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline. Mm -hmm. So again, we're, we're, the party is telling us not to believe what we see with our, right. with our own eyes here. Uh, so on the business of jets, Mike, um, so Poland, I believe, and another, is Estonia and Poland, I'm not, not mistaken, have committed MiGs, yes. um, if I'm not mistaken there. Um, so France uh, basically wants to organize some Mirage jets for Zelensky, uh, Mirage 2000s, and they're going to do a three-way deal. Uh, they're going to buy them back off the UAE. These are French jets that uh, they fitted out the UAE Air Force back in the 80s with Mirage 2000s. They're getting old, but apparently they're still cutting edge enough for combat for Ukraine. They're also looking at Greece and Indonesia as well to put together a sort of an air force, uh, if you will. It's a great report here, stunning report by the French journalist Freddy Ponton on this, who's done some really great research on this, Mike. So, but the problem is, it's uh, the, the training that's already going on seems to be with ground crew. So we're asking the question, Freddie's asked this in this article, Mike, is it possible that they don't want to put Ukrainian pilots into the French Mirage jets? That maybe French pilots will be in the French Mirage jets and it will be Ukrainian ground engineers, ground staff that they're training in. Uh, well, how can, they, how can it be any different? How many platforms are they going to offer to Ukraine? So F-16s, uh, Eurofighters, uh, Mirage 2000s now and the MiGs. Well, the only thing they've had training on before are the MiGs. Uh, so that's realistically the only thing that they can potentially fly. The other platforms is going to take them, as you've said before, months, if not years, years. Uh, to, to convert to those. And it, so this has got to be just another P PR scheme, right? Unless, as you say, they're going to put their own pilots in there. Uh, it is a PR scheme and it's a good business deal because guess what? The UAE wants to order new Rafales to refit their whole uh, Air Force. So good business for France, get rid of the old, in with the new. Right. So they have inked a deal for Rafales with the UAE, France, so to be delivered before the end of the decade. So that's a done deal. I think they're gonna buy uh, quite a few of them, uh, more than 50, I think, or around 50 or more. Uh, so this is interesting. The other thing that's interesting about this story is, where will these jets be living if once they are uh, transferred over to Ukraine? Will they be living in Ukraine? or will they be living in Poland? That's the question. Good question. If they do end up in Ukraine, I predict they will stay in a hangar. Yes, you know, so if, if so there seems to be a, a plan to amass uh, 80 planes from different countries in Poland. This is what uh, this author of this article is speculating, and that will be the base for the new Ukrainian coalition air force to possibly enforce a no-fly zone or a, quote, safe zone a humanitarian zone over Lviv and Western Ukraine. Right. So that's something to possibly look forward to. Anyway, keep an eye on this story. It's a very interesting one. Okay, uh, so let's uh, have a look at this. Now, this is from December last year. Uh, this is blood money, pure and simple. A top aide to Ukraine's President Zelensky accuses BP of war profiteering with stake in Russian oil for, uh, firm. So this idea that the oil companies have been making huge profits over the last uh, lot of months uh, as a result of 
uh, Ukrainian blood is one that the Ukrainian government has been pushing for a little, little while. Uh, why are we mentioning this now? Because a new article has appeared in Politico uh, saying Kiev says uh, big oil should pay to rebuild Ukraine's shattered infrastructure. Uh, this is uh, the Ukrainian uh, energy minister. So let's have a look at what he says. He was giving uh, Politico an, an interview. He said this, a lot of energy companies get enormous windfall profits due to the war. So we estimate uh, we estimated that uh, this at more than $200 billion. They get this money because we are fighting because of the war. Uh, I think it would be fair to share this money with Ukraine. I mean, to help us to restore, to rebuild the energy sector. So uh, apparently uh, we in the West will be continuing to pay extremely high energy prices because uh, all the profits, anybody's thinking about windfall tax, you can forget that because that's all going to go to Ukraine if the Ukrainians have their way. But they've been pushing this narrative for quite a long time now. So that Zelensky wants a windfall tax first. And then what's going to happen? That's the cost is going to be passed on to guess who? The European uh, consumers. Yes. So that's interesting. And he's saying, Mike, that the it, it, as as the war is dragging on, so why not end the war? This this is the part that's missing from this conversation. Why not end the war, and then we can sort of have all these problems solved? That doesn't seem to be happening. Nobody's talking about. Nobody in Kiev. Nobody in Washington. Nobody in London or Brussels is talking about uh, ceasefire or peace negotiations. Indeed. They just want to uh, have more tax, more money, more arms. Uh, and where does it end? Yes. Okay. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'll be very welcome to join us there and uh, your help very much appreciated. You pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share material you find uh, from the ukcolumn.org website, but also ukcolumnextracts.co.uk and the other various platforms. Um, okay, let's uh, move on to Africa. And Vanessa, um, we're beginning with a, a short video clip from Tulsi Gabbard here. Yeah, um, she basically reappeared on Twitter after about four months absence and uh, with a Twitter thread that is basically the transcript of what she says in this video. So if we have a listen. Okay. Aloha, everyone. Uh, you haven't heard much from me lately. I've been gone for the last four months serving on an active duty tour and deployment to Africa as a civil affairs officer. I was supporting a special forces mission to go after Al-Qaeda affiliated jihadists. Now, every single day, it was truly my honor to work with incredible patriots, experienced, focused warriors with an unwavering commitment to serve our country. We should never forget that you know, no matter the decisions that the politicians make or the careerists in the Pentagon make, it is our men and women in uniform who selflessly and quietly defend the safety, security, and freedom of our country every day. Now, I haven't posted much since I was gone because I was asked not to talk about my going overseas until my mission was complete. Al-Qaeda is very active where we were and as someone who has a high profile, I would have been a prime target for the enemy, putting my life and the lives of my fellow service members and our mission in greater danger. Now I look forward to discussing the foreign and domestic issues and challenges that we're facing in our country. Right. Now, why is this, why is this interesting? <laughs> 
because here is Tulsi Gabbard basically uh, supporting the narrative that there is a need for greater uh, U.S. military presence in Africa to do what? To combat uh, the terrorist threat in uh, the majority of Africa now. And yet Gabbard really came to prominence because of her very strong stand on uh, the Stop Arming Terrorists Act prevent terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or state sponsors like Saudi Arabia from receiving cash, weapons, or intelligence. And as she says there, the practice of spending taxpayer dollars to fund counterproductive regime change wars must end. So I find it um, very interesting that here she is. She doesn't mention the fact that Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda splinter groups that are in Africa are part of the larger complex of terrorism that was created um, and enabled, empowered by the United States and its allies, obviously, in the UK and the EU, et cetera, um, <clears throat> since 9-11. So this is an article from RT at the same time in 2018. Gabbard's Stop Arming Terrorist Act, or HR 608, states that it would prohibit the use of United States government funds to provide assistance to al-Qaeda, Islamic State, uh, formerly ISIS, their supporters and others. And she says, every American would be surprised to know that for years our government has been providing both direct and indirect support to these armed militant groups who are working directly with or under the command of terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, all in their effort and fight to overthrow the Syrian government. So what has suddenly changed? Is Al-Qaeda no longer being funded by the United States? Is Al-Qaeda in Africa not important? Um, if you look at the location of both ISIS and Al-Qaeda, so you have Saudi Arabia, Yemen. Yemen, we know we have Al-Qaeda, Arab Peninsula, um, that uh, were largely defeated by Ansarullah prior to the 2015 aggression by Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, um, it's being re-empowered by the United States um, and Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel in Yemen. Saudi Arabia, the primary funders of ISIS in Syria, the, in the circle above. Um, many of those terrorists came in to Syria from Libya and have been percolated back out again from Syria back to Libya. In Egypt, in the Sinai, we know that there are various splinter groups, again, under the control um, both of uh, Israeli intelligence agencies, U.S. and U.K. intelligence agencies. We know um, that those terrorists can very easily get into the uh, Central African Republic and into the other areas of Africa. So why is none of this context being presented by Tulsi Gabbard in her um, little sort of uh, Twitter video there? Um, perhaps because the big threat or the big perceived threat in uh, Africa now, and we've talked previously about the front going eventually from Ukraine to Africa against uh, Russia and China, is uh, Russia's influence in the Central African Republic in particular through its, uh, as it's described in the West, its mercenary group, the Wagner Group, which of course was also responsible for battling Western-sponsored and created terrorism uh, inside Syria and is now doing the same thing from what we understand in the Central African Republic and in many other areas. But of course, that is complete 
I mean, that sort of throw up, throw your hands up in the air horror for the United States. This is what this means and for the EU, um, because the EU has effectively failed, just as the US failed in Iraq to provide weapons for the groups that were genuinely fighting ISIS. France uh, predominantly has failed to provide weapons to the Central African Republic um, to fight the terrorist groups described as rebels by the BBC and Amnesty, et cetera, et cetera. Again, very similar to the Syria situation. And here you have President Faustin Archange Tuadera basically saying he has nothing to hide about uh, the Russian support for the Central African Republic. And in fact, he goes on to say that the supply of weapons by Russia, um, 7,000 individual weapons, uh, that Russia sent free of charge and legally. Um, so he's basically saying this is nothing that is being done in secret. It was, it was actually sanctioned by the UN. It was authorized by the UN. And the Russians uh, sent instructors to train the Central African military on how to use the weapons that they supplied that, as I mentioned before, France failed to supply. Um, <clears throat> and it goes on to say, it um, doesn't matter, um, so uh, President uh, Tuadera attended a ceremony for the unveiling of the statue of FACA and Wagner private military contractors and was escorted by a Wagner private military contractor. So what you're seeing really is both um, Russia and China through a large degree soft power through the establishment of infrastructure inside Africa in partnership um, with uh, oil, um, uranium, the uh, um, uh, source uh, companies there. Um, but of course, what is the West and its media saying, um, the Wagner Group, why the EU is alarmed by Russian mercenaries in Central Africa? Well, as I've mentioned, of course they're alarmed because they see the rising influence of Russia and China. We know that the West has basically shrunk its military forces back into um, Mauritania in northwestern Africa from where it intends to begin its fight against terror in inverted commas. Um, and here you have uh, the, the BBC reporting that the European Union imposed sanctions on the Wagner Group, a Russian mercenary organization accused of committing human rights abuses in the CIR and elsewhere. The EU has said that it will no longer train CIR government soldiers because of their links to Wagner. Um, in Africa, Wagner is involved in Libya, Sudan, Mozambique, and it looks likely to play a role in Mali, a former uh, French colony, of course. So what are we actually seeing really here? We're seeing really the Syria blueprint. We're seeing um, military occupation, military bases established by the US in Africa, which are enabling the plundering of resources under the pretext of fighting terrorism that is effectively being produced by the US cartel um, and by NATO member states, um, either through, as I said, the percolation of terrorist groups that are already being used elsewhere, like Syria and Afghanistan, Libya, Egypt, and also by, for example, the Obama uh, drone warfare program that is effectively having uh, or had the effect of radicalizing and uh, pushing people to join the extremist gangs that were, as I said, being uh, globally weaponized by the United States. Then you have Russia being invited into many of the African states to actually fight against the US-sponsored terrorism 
And you then have uh, the US government and its allies and its aligned media criminalizing the Wagner Group and Russia for coming to the help of those African states uh, in their battle against terrorism. Uh, does that sound at all uh, familiar? Uh, uh, Sorry, it absolutely, yeah, it absolutely does. It is a it is a familiar pattern, and uh, and of course one of the reasons that the EU in particular would be getting so excited about this is because what we're talking about, if we think think back to that Africa map that you showed with all the red dots on it, mm. that that's the Sahel where the majority of those yeah. red dots were. That is the Sahel. Uh, mm. The EU considers that its southern neighbourhood. That's yeah. its area of major diplomatic influence. Uh, and it yeah. gets very upset when anybody else encroaches on that territory. Because it's the future breadbasket yeah. for Europe. 100%, yes, yes. Yeah, and remember that, that AFRICOM, the, the AFRICOM bases only really came in during Obama's administration, and that many of the uh, weapons that are being siphoned out of Ukraine are ending up uh, in the Sahel. Um, now, this is uh, something that I watched this morning, and I just recommend people, if they want to know something about the history of uh, AFRICOM and the U.S. empire in Africa, the Empire Files has a series of interviews which historically do put a lot of context to the story, so I do recommend it. Okay, thank you, Vanessa. Patrick? Yeah, and just point out, when, when AFRICOM was commissioned uh, at the very end of the Bush presidency, and then, as Vanessa said, uh, ramped up during uh, the first term of Barack Obama, and a lot of their documents, some of the foundational documents are no longer on their website, but I, uh, have, we have bookmarked them, and previous people have written about this. The initial aim of AFRICOM was to, quote, evict Chinese influence mm. from the continent of Africa. So that is one of the big uh, things. And a quick question, Vanessa, do you, can, Tulsi Gabbard did not say what country she was deployed in. Um, there's a, a, quite a few possibilities, Burkina Faso, Somalia, Sudan. Uh, do, you, do you have any guess? Oh, I mean, she, she said that she deliberately didn't say which country um, for security reasons. But yes, you're right, it could be any single one of those. I think it's interesting, you know, this is kind of a mirror Mike theme of the Cold War where you have all these proxy wars going on, uh, Soviet versus the US via in Angola and during that, that period and different people coming in to assist and fight these countries. So right. it's a kind of a new Cold War, that's interesting. Uh, Russia has something as well that uh, the United States doesn't have and I don't believe any other European or NATO country has other than Turkey. Russia has a substantive uh, contingent of Muslim members of its military and that i think is one of the keys to their success in places like syria um, they have really good relations on the ground uh, with local people um, and this is something that the united states can't do mm -hmm. so in in that sense russia has really good credibility in the countries that they go and they partner with um, but the other thing is um, how is this any different this all this talk about wagner wagner blackrock academy <laughs> xc I mean, that's a, yeah. hundreds of billions of dollars worth of contracts from, from uh, 2001 going forward. I mean, literally colonizing 
all these locations around the world. I mean, a massive global footprint. Right. Um, so the the criticism they have with uh, Wagner, the Wagner Group, is uh, interesting. And there's a, there's an ICC angle to this, and the 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 case against Vladimir Putin and the ICC, which we didn't cover um, properly today, which we can cover next week. Mm -hmm. But there's a stipulation in the ICC uh, whereby if a country allows for the U.S. To uh, we've reported on this at Twenty One Wire to to house U.S. troops on their soil, um, then they it's, it's likely they'll be passed over for any potential prosecution from the International Criminal Court. And think about that: the only people ever prosecuted before Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Putin has broken the glass ceil glass ceiling for uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion as the first white man. Uh, ever to be uh, uh, indicted by the uh, International Criminal Court. Before that, it's all Africans. You walk into the, 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 the lobby there, it's just, it's all Africans. Six black Africans and Qaddafi. That's it. So, it's, so you can avoid ICC prosecution by playing ball with the United States. Isn't that interesting? Because the U.S. is not even a signatory um, to, they haven't ratified the treaty for the ICC. They're not involved in it, but yet, they control the ICC in so many different ways. It is a tool of the United States and probably the British too. Um, and just to avoid the uh, uh, inevitable emails, uh, Milosevic wasn't actually an ICC prosecution. No, he wasn't. He was across the road in the special international tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, was not part of the ICC. I know I got slammed on Twitter uh, when I said Putin was the first white man to be prosecuted and I had to correct everybody one by one. Yeah, okay, so uh, let's uh, move back to NATO then. And uh, here's Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, I'm not gonna bore everybody with what he actually said, but he was very excited this morning because Turkey, the Turkish parliament has decided to ratify uh, Finland's entry into NATO. Uh, and so uh, NATO, Finland will be a member of NATO within the next week or so. Uh, that is uh, hot off the presses this morning. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but uh, I just think it's uh, a, a pretty bad day for Scandinavia. Well, um, my question is, what did Turkey get in return for that? Because uh, Erdogan is a transactional politician. He is like Trump. So they certainly must have gotten something or a promise of something. We'll find out soon enough. Yes. Okay. Uh, Financial Times here. Prepare for a multipolar currency world. There's a lot more to say about this, and we're not going to get too deep into it this week, but perhaps next week we can go more in depth about this. The de-dollarization process is well underway, and there's some big announcements over the last couple of weeks uh, to support this. And so this is the Financial Times, a really nice article here, prepare for a multi-polar uh, currency world. So they're talking about the fact that the U.S. still dominates uh, a lot of markets, especially debt markets. Um, so, you know, in terms of governments and liquidity, it's in dollar arbitrage, Mike, the, the dollar is still the go-to currency. Yeah. There's nothing that can replace it. The euro is probably second in the second position on that. But the Chinese yuan is, is sort of surging in terms of trade. So this is interesting. The problem is China is kind of a closed economic system. So they, it doesn't have the sort of internationalization and the availability and the accessibility as the dollar does. Uh, well, uh, from a Western context, but of course from an Eastern context, as we see the development of BRICS and the, uh, the, the, the Shanghai Cooperation, uh, all, this kind, all these kind of uh, organizations being set up, there's actually 
parallel systems being created for for transaction for international transactions and so on that's changing very very fast yeah and the china the new chinese swift system yes. um, it looks like the agreements between china and brazil that's been signed again we didn't go into details on this this week but we can do that um, next week so this is a trend this is real it's actually happening we just want to make that point. Uh, now, uh, King Charles has been in Germany. Of course, we're not going to bore anybody with that particular speech, uh, but uh, this belief uh, as King, Green King Charles gives royal assent to new Dean gene breeding technology, this comes on from uh, uh, the uh, our coverage of this last week, uh, this new gene editing legislation. That's right, that's right. So it's gotten royal assent here. And of course, this is Julian Rose, who himself is a pioneer in organic farming in the UK, Sir Julian Rose. He's written this uh, fantastic story here, and he's basically calling this out as a kind of betrayal of especially organic farming. So look at the details. So he is the Green King, right? Charles yeah. is, he's the, he, <laughs> Prince Charles had a green thumb and he is the Green King. So here's what Julian Rose has to say. Here is the uh, document here, Gene Technology Precision Breeding Act 2023. Uh, and this is what Julian Rose has to say in terms of commentary. And mind you, Julian is an expert in this field. Um, in one of the more shocking hypocrisies of this year so far, Charles III, King of England, considered to be a strong supporter of organic farming and environmental causes, has given his royal assent to a biotechnology innovation, uh, which will provide an open book for UK firms to alter the genome of animals and plants so as to create novel engineered species and biotech foods, foods uh, in quote. We say foods and we use that term loosely here. In, in taking uh, this step, Charles has committed an open act of betrayal of all bona fide farmers, particularly of organic farmers here. And uh, he goes on, this piece of legislation will, for the time being, uh, be unique to the UK, uh, such as animals and plant biotech uh, deformations are not allowed in the EU and many other countries. Isn't that interesting? Uh, especially with Brexit just behind us. Uh, very interesting indeed. And he goes on here, finally, a secondary deception relates to the marketing of such novel recombinant DA, DNA experiments here. And he goes on, the UK government has stated that no separate definition will be given to gene technology engineered products Therefore, no special labeling will be required. And that is, I think, the part that Julian Rose is most concerned about, is they're not making, they're not making a distinction uh, between these different types of GMO practices or normal breeding and, let's say, uh, you know, interfering with the, the genes and so forth. So what, what exactly are we looking at here? Is this more deregulation? Uh, well, what, well, the government is, well, of course, the government wants to establish uh, the UK as the bio, biotech center of the world. That's what it's claiming that it wants to do. Uh, in this case, uh, they're attempting to claim that this will be in order to, to replicate what could be done in nature, uh, but to do it in a much shorter time scale. So, you know, we would end up with a plant or an animal which could have been arrived at through selective breeding, but that would have taken generation after generation after generation. Uh, this, of course, is untrue. They claim that this is not genetic engineering because uh, although you're allowed to uh, place genetic uh, segments into the genome of the plant that you're messing with from a, uh, an external source, from another organism, uh, 
that that genetic sequence has to be removed again before that genet so it can be used in order to, to to create a genetic change in the organism but that particular sequence has to be removed again at the end and therefore it's not genetic engineering uh, but as Julian Rose says here uh, they aren't distinguishing the terms when it comes to marketing uh, and so you don't know what you're going to get and my question Patrick is because if we look at at the way farmers are being uh, discouraged from farming, they're being encouraged to rewild, they're being paid to take uh, arable land out of production. Uh, we've got what's going on in uh, Netherlands at the moment with the farmers there and in Ireland uh, having to reduce the, the numbers of uh, farm animals and so on. And my question is, is this about uh, creating uh, crops or animals which we can, can be grown uh, in f factories, literal factories, rather than in in soil? Lab factories, yes. bugs, uh, lab-grown meat, and so forth. So yeah, I think you're right. And that brings us on to the other side of the story here in the United States. Um, this is uh, from Thomas Renz's blog here, uh, republished by Naomi Wolf's Daily Clout. Uh, Missouri House testimony, biotech admits Gates GMO factory food, as you're talking about, lab-grown food is a gene therapy. In other words, it does change the genetic structure. Biotech lobbyists in Missouri oppose HB1169 gene therapy disclosure and informed consent bill. They admit that GMO food, like the type Bill Gates is pushing to manufacture in these labs, factories, will alter your genetics here. And they go on. So the bill would require disclosure of any product that would produce impacts on the human body similar to gene therapy drugs as well as requiring informed consent disclosure to include all risks and benefits including adverse events of special interests. So there's people obviously opposing this disclosure bill, the industry is, and they're saying well it is dangerous. So in, there's that's basically what they're saying in the United States. So this is going on now on both sides of the Atlantic here um, and in Europe there's still a lot of still some pushback. Um, on the GMO front on some of these issues, but for how long? Right. That's the question. Um, okay, let's uh, bring Lieutenant Colonel Tobias Elwood on screen. Here he is, just to remind everybody what he looks like. Uh, of course, he was pushing for all kinds of things, including vaccination certificates uh, during COVID. Uh, but we, we put him on screen here because, of course, he's an MP, but he's also a reservist for 77th Brigade. Um, now, uh, we have an article on the, still on the front page of the UK Column website uh, at the moment by Philip Ridley uh, called 77th Brigade and the Parliamentary Conflict of Interest. I recommend that article to everyone. But Philip Ridley has uh, put in a Freedom of Information request to the Ministry of Defence about Tobias Elwood. Uh, let's just have a look at the text of that. He said to them, or he asked them, in light of Lieutenant Colonel the Right Honourable Tobias Elwood VRMP, being an MP and chairing the Defence Select Committee, and with relevance to the House of Commons Disqualification Act 1975, I wish to ask whether you hold any records of dates that he was called up for active service whilst serving uh, in Parliament. So as I say, he's a reservist in 77th Brigade, and the question here is, has he been called up for active uh, service while he's been uh, an MP? Uh, whereas the 1975 Act would not cause active service of a reservist to become disqualified, I believe that it is in the public interest to know whether he has been or is called up for active service, in particular with 77th Brigade. If he has been called up, please provide any publicly available information about the details of the deployment. 
Um, so I can't imagine what the answer would have been, but let's bring it on screen. This is what the Ministry of Defence said. The information you've requested falls entirely within the scope of the absolute exemption provided for by Section 40 brackets personal information of the Freedom of Information Act. I can confirm that the department holds the information you've asked for, but in this case, we will not be providing it to you as it, ex it, as it is exempt from disclosure. We are not obliged under Section 40 brackets 2 of the Act to provide information that is the personal information of another person if releasing would contravene any of the provisions of the Data Protection Act 1998. In this instance, we believe that the release of this information would contravene the first data protection principle and therefore for, uh, 40 brackets 2 is engaged. Uh, the terms of this exemption in the Freedom of Information Act means we do not have to consider whether or not it would be in the public interest for you to have the information. Now, I have a massive interest with uh, a massive uh, uh, problem with this position, um, and this has to be challenged. And I'm going to say I know that Philip Ridley is challenging this, but everybody that's watching uh, must challenge this as well. This is unbelievably disingenuous of the Ministry of Defence to invoke the Data Protection Act under these circumstances. It has nothing to do with uh, personal information of Tobias Elwood. Tobias Elwood has uh, taken two oaths of office, one to Parliament, one to the Crown, uh, and therefore he is acting in as a servant of the public. And we need to know how he has been deployed. This is not something that is happening in his personal life. This is something which is happening in his public life. And therefore, the any personal consideration of the Data Protection Act should not apply. Now, I'm just going to remind everybody, for those of you that have been watching the UK column long enough to remember this, but back in 2013, I think it was, Rory Stewart MP went to the Bilderberg Group and he was challenged by a constituent. Let's just bring him on screen. Uh, Florence of Arabia, as he's otherwise known, he was challenged by a constituent uh, to explain what whether he went to the Bilderberg Group in a personal capacity or as uh, a public servant, and he refused to answer as a sitting MP at the time. Now, of course, uh, it wasn't a freedom of information request, and so it can't be taken any further. But nonetheless, the, the principle, there is a principle here about whether a public servant, when they act as a public servant or whether they are doing something outside of their normal job while they're a public servant, whether they are entitled to keep that secret, because that then allows for all kinds of corruption and all kinds of hiding of conflicts of interest. Tobias Elwood needs to come clean on this issue, and I think everybody should be getting motivated. This is an interesting issue, Mike. Do you remember the Integrity Initiative leaks? Yes. Do you remember there was a section in the Integrity Initiative leaks about the 77th uh, Brigade? And one only has to wonder in this particular case with Tobias Elwood, is the thing that needs protecting uh, Tobias Elwood or the, 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 the way that 77th Brigade is actually working because it is it, it is a, into a kind of a gray area, isn't it? There are people who volunteer also to work in the upper echelons of the 77th Brigade. Right. So this is how they recruit people in normal walks of life, be they lawyers, bankers, maybe politicians. Um, so they could be working uh, for 77th Brigade without, quote, working for 77th Brigade. That's an important distinction, but nonetheless, a conflict of interest that's basically latent uh, in this in this arrangement, the same with the NAFO troll army, right? Uh, which NATO has the hundred thousand strong NAFO troll army that includes some very high profile people in the upper echelons of NAFO, including former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who ran point on the uh, the impeachment hearings and recently on the uh, January sixth 
sorry, on the January 6th committee, yes. who's left Congress now, um, who's now a private citizen and working for CNN as a journalist. So he is a self-identified as a NAFO fellow or fella. Um, so uh, I, I think the more I look at this, I think that NAFO um, is based on the 77th Brigade model. I really do. It's just a lot bigger and more internationalized. But, so uh, as a final comment on this then, uh, if so the Ministry of Defence said they hold the information. If that information was that he had not been deployed on active service while he has been an MP, I think they would have said no, but perhaps not. But anyway, we'll come, we need to keep the pressure on on this one. It's all in the denial, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, okay, let's just uh, mention uh, Virgin Orbit, uh, because Virgin Orbit, uh, of course, attempted to launch a satellite into uh, into orbit uh, a few months ago. It failed. Uh, this was to be the first satellite launched into orbit from UK soil in for well forever actually, um, and uh, well the British government absolutely bought into this and were promoting this extremely hard at the time. Now Virgin Orbit has now said that they're laying off 85% of their staff after one failed uh, launch, uh, and they're going to cease operations. They couldn't raise the money and so on. But I just wanted to have a brief laugh at this because if we remember about how. Uh, engaged the uh, Grant Shapps and the British government were at the time. So this was Grant Shapps tweeting out that the UK government is delighted to be backing the first ever satellite launch from European soil. Uh, well, actually from UK soil, lift off schedule for Monday at Spaceport Cornwall, uh, Newquay. Uh, well, the thing about it was, Patrick, that uh, Grant Shapps put that photograph on there, uh, but that was a fake photo. Oh. Because this is what the photo actually looked like. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the original had Boris? The original had Boris in it, and he got rid of Boris, uh, but... Are you serious? I'm totally serious. They used that? Yes. Wow. Yes. So, Grant Shapps, absolutely behind Virgin Orbit, except when he wasn't, because when they needed the money, uh, there was no money to be had, and so Virgin Orbit is effectively gone. Um, so there you go. Anyway, uh, a bit of sad news to end. Yeah, so we wanted to... Uh... Uh, some people might be aware, uh, Greg Sharkey, uh, he uh, ha founded an event series called Imperialism on Trial. He's from Derry uh, in, in uh, Northern Ireland, and he uh, sadly passed away, uh, I believe a couple of weeks ago, uh, in Chamonix in France. And uh, his uh, funeral service was uh, on Monday right. uh, in Derry, um, and uh, very sad. Um, he had a lot of supporters, He's a, a, a real... Um, a real asset to uh, the anti-war movement, I would say, um, brought a lot of people together, uh, staged some fantastic events. Um, he's a, he was a real warrior, um, an absolute warrior, and um, uh, left behind, I think, made a big impact. Um, he, was, uh, he was a cab driver uh, by trade in Derry, but he uh, worked really hard on during his extracurricular hours to organize so many great events, not just for imperialism on trial, but also uh, opposing the lockdowns and COVID policies and questioning the vaccine mandates um, at a time when it was quite tense in Northern Ireland on that issue because Wales, yes. Scotland, Northern Ireland had vaccine passport uh, policies uh, for a while there. So, um, but uh, I wanted to point people to this the only interview, I think, uh, one of the only ones that Greg gave, I, I did with him um, over the summer, and he's talking about his uh, life and his history and the music industry and how the, pol the politics of music and the artists change 
uh, right up to the till now with the vaccine issue. Um, and it's a, a tremendous uh, interview. He, he's very uh, deferential, very humble in this interview. And really, you can get an idea of Greg, I think, uh, from this. We've got this posted at the top of our website here. But um, he'll be missed by many, very popular, um, and, a, and a real visible member of his community um, uh, down there, uh, over there in Derry. Okay, well, look, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Thank you, Vanessa, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes for a little bit of extra um, and hope to see everybody there. Uh, if you're not a UK Column member, uh, then we'll see you uh, on Monday at 1 p.m. as usual. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.